Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, how governments are limiting foreign investment in tech companies in an attempt to reduce China's influence. The big picture is that there are concerns that the Chinese have been investing in startups as a way of getting access to critical technologies that will affect the future of national security in America. A new decentralized prediction market... This new company, Augur, it's not actually a company or a service. It's an application that lives on a blockchain that is distributed database. But first, around the world, the prices of homes in booming globalised cities has continued to soar. Will this go on or are these homes now overpriced? To look at the trend, The Economist has created a Cities House Price Index, which uses data for 22 of the world's best locations for people, culture and ideas. I'm joined by James Francham, one of our data journalists, who compiled the index and is writing about it for this week's Economist. Hi, James. Hello, Helen. So briefly, how did you choose the cities and what did you look at? Sure. Well, the cities are, for the most part, the kind of preeminent cities in, in each of the country concerns. So we're, we're looking here at um, developed countries, the rich world for the most part, but also China as well. So we're looking at Shanghai for China, Sydney New York, San Francisco, London, Paris. So the kind of usual suspects, really. And what measures did you take for each of those cities? So we looked at straight up house price inflation, so on a nominal basis, but then deflated it. So looking at the real terms increase in, in prices. And then we, we introduced some valuation metrics too. And are you comparing each city with the country that it sits in? Or are you basically trying to say that this is a sort of global elite that's now moving away from the rest of the world? Well, that's part of the story. So one of it is is kind of these cities have lots of common things that bunch them together. So they're very attractive places for, as you said, for people and culture and ideas and for businesses. But they're also distinct from their from their nation states as well. And we find that in the data as well. So, for example, house prices in cities have, have outstripped that of their nation states for the past five years. Is this partly a post-financial crisis story? I mean, we saw a lot of house price inflation and then house prices fell post the financial crisis and then they started to rise again. Let's get more granular on that. Well, yes, as you know, housing nearly took down the financial system in 2008, 2009. And part of this growth in prices since then has been a bit of a bounce back. But we actually find in 14 cities that prices are now above their pre-crisis peak. And that's in real terms? That's in real terms. When you said you looked at some valuation metrics, I guess you're trying to get some idea of whether it's fair that these houses are priced so highly. 
What sort of things did you compare housing to? For a national house price index, we compare housing against two metrics. So that's against median incomes and against rents. And the idea here is that if the path of house price inflation on a nominal basis outstrips that of incomes and or rents, then over the long run, we suspect that prices may not be sustainable, or at least that incomes and and rents would have to rise to bring them back to some kind of equilibrium. And is that what we're seeing in these cities? That's exactly what we're seeing. So in places such as Sydney, in London, in Paris, prices look pretty throffy compared to the the path of median incomes. Rental data is a bit more tricky to get at, but on an income basis alone, they do look frothy. So what's been behind this? We think there are three broad reasons for this. The first one is demand. So basically, lots of people have been moving there, and they're really attractive places. The second one is supply. So at the same time, These cities are difficult places to build, and they just haven't built enough housing. So you've had this imbalance of demand and supply, classic economic story. And then the third one is the cost of money. So since the financial crisis, interest rates have come right down, money is cheap, and that has kind of fueled this boom too. And that's meant that it's possible to repay a larger loan at the same cost. So in a way, that's fair enough if the price goes up. But we're starting to see the rowback in quantitative easing. And uh, if central banks around the world are going to start tightening, we expect soon, or have already started some of them. So what's going to happen? The truth is, we really don't know. But I mean, if as interest rates now are normalising, that we suspect that prices will have to soften at least, or they may well fall. Any particular cities that look particularly frothy? Well, I think if I had to pick one problem case, it would be London itself. Obviously, we're affected here, particularly by uncertainty around Brexit. There's also been a lot of foreign money, foreign investment into London too, which has pushed up prices. But that foreign investment now is slowing. There's evidence that a lot of supply that's come on the market in prime apartments, that those prime apartments aren't selling and developers are, are looking to offload them in bulk. So those kind of things, they really kind of could cause the onset of some kind of panic and, and you may see a significant correction in London. Thanks, James. Next to Silicon Valley. While President Donald Trump and China spar over tariffs, there is another area where the American administration is trying to tighten up its laws on foreign investment. In the coming weeks, Congress is likely to pass a bill called the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, or FIRMA, which puts new restrictions on foreign investment into technology firms. It's really aimed at China. And Europe is thinking of tightening its investment rules too. I'm handing over to Rachna Shanbog, The Economist's Europe economics correspondent, to discuss this with Alexandra Suwage-Bass, our US technology editor. Hi, Alexandra. Welcome to Money Talks. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, Alexandra, efforts are underway in America to beef up the way in which they review foreign investment. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes. The FIRMA bill, which is expected to be signed into law by Trump this week, uh, is actually kind of a rare occurrence in Washington, D.C. these days because it had tremendous bipartisan support in getting passed. What it will do is broaden which type of deals are reviewed by CFIUS. Um, And to date, we haven't seen a lot of deals, particularly as it relates to passive or minority investments in startups, um, come under review. Passive investments still won't come under review under CFIUS and won't be assessed for national security concerns. But increasingly, we're going to see certain types of deals like startup investments be reviewed by CFIUS. The big picture is 
is that there are concerns that the Chinese in particular, um, although they're not called out by name, have been investing in startups as a way of getting access to critical technologies that will affect the future of national security in America. And the government wants to ensure that it's taking a look at these deals and ensuring that the Chinese aren't gaining access to critical technologies from these early stage startups, which haven't been reviewed in the past. And how important is Chinese investment for Silicon Valley firms? The Chinese have a very different approach to investing in a couple ways. They're willing to accept higher valuations because they're outsiders. They haven't had decades or even years of experience and the same networks that the mainstream venture American venture capital firms have had that are based on Sand Hill Road. So they're also willing to invest because they're interested potentially in these long-term technology bets in some deep technology. So one of the most interesting things to come out of this debate is to think about how the Chinese have been investing in startups. And there was a very interesting report that came out through DIUX, and it suggested that actually Actually, the Chinese were investing in startups as a way to block the U.S. government from buying the services of these startups because the U.S. government, the Defense Department, doesn't want to use the services of startups that have foreign investors. And it was suggested that the Chinese understood this and were actually acting in a proactive way and investing partly to block the U.S. government from using the services of these startups. And so one of the interesting things will be to see is, is the U.S government going to be more willing to use the services of some of these startups in some of these critical areas. That's very interesting. Of course, it's not just America that's worried about investment and national security. Japan and Australia have tightened up their investment screening rules. And last week, Germany, for the first time, blocked the acquisition of a domestic company by a Chinese investor. And Britain is planning also to tighten up its rules. And the European Union is in the process of setting a mechanism to assess foreign investment. Do you think all this regulation risks putting off the Chinese from investing altogether? Well, of course, it's important to point out that the Chinese have tremendous controls in place about the areas that they consider off limits for foreign investors, whether it's majority ownership or minority uh, ownership. There are whole swaths of the Chinese economy that block foreign investment. So the fact that America, Europe and others are waking up to this, I think, could be dangerous, but I think they're meeting the Chinese on their own terms in many respects. I think that the critical thing that governments need to think about beyond whether or not they're being protectionist is are they investing long-term and enough in their own national security and innovation? And it's one thing for Europe or America to block foreign takeovers. It's another to really foster innovation at home and fund deep research and technological research in a profound way. And in America, for example, we've seen the government spend far less on federally funded research as declined from around 2% of GDP in the 1960s. Today, it's about 0.7%. So rather than just focusing on what the future of foreign takeovers should be, I think that governments would be wise to think about how they can foster innovation at home. Alexandra, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Rachna Shanbog talking to Alexandra Sewage-Bass, and you're listening to Money Talks from The Economist. 
If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And finally, Ludwig Ziegler, our technology editor, is here with me to talk about prediction markets, where you can go to place a bet on pretty much any outcome. Ludwig, they sound a bit like the sort of betting markets where you could go and just say who you thought would win the next election. So what's new? Yes, I mean, these sort of services have existed for a long time. And and you may remember there was a company called Intrade, which closed down, I think, in 2013, which offered or allowed you to do that. But what's new is that this new company, Augur, is decentralized. So it's not actually a company or a service. It's it's an application that lives on a blockchain that is distributed, a distributed database. And so there is no throw to choke. So even if regulators wanted to go after uh, bettors because they think a bet is unethical or illegal, that would be difficult. So from file sharing and from music sharing, that was like Napster um, could be closed down because it kept a central repository of all the files it was sharing. And now we're looking at a more decentralized peer-to-peer that service. That is exactly the right comparison. So Napster was easy to kind of be closed down because there was a centralized kind of directory of where to find music. And that, of course, gave rise to also a decentralized solution for or decentralized solutions like Kazaa or, or BitTorrent which BitTorrent still exists today. And th- those are much more difficult to, to shut down. And same thing kind of applies to uh, to Augur and uh, uh, its decentralization. And the reason a regulator might go after a prediction market is basically just that betting is illegal in some jurisdictions, I guess. Betting is considered uh, gambling in, in many states in the US. Uh, if you trade in commodities or is a commodities contract, then it also has to be regulated. You have to have a license, all that. So uh, yes, it's a regulatory problem. And um, the service of the company, the Forecast Foundation, which is behind, or the organization which is behind the service auger, it's, that's exactly what they want, basically to allow people to bet without being stopped uh, by regulators. Now, so that's why you might want to um, create this sort of firm uh, from a sort of a negative point of view. You're trying to get away from regulation. But what might be the positive things about having a prediction market? So prediction markets, the idea is kind of you crowdsource knowledge. The hope is that by giving people a, a financial incentive, to, so they bet, so they get money if they're right. So financial incentive to reveal their their knowledge, you get very good predictions. And that has, in some cases, that turns out to be actually quite a good method like election outcomes. It's less good if there's no information to be crowdsourced. For example, if you're betting a market on whether there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq probably wouldn't have yielded much of a good outcome because basically there's no information around on that and the people who know, they have no interest to reveal that information. So you have to be careful where that method, where that service works and where it doesn't. Are there any other reasons that regulators or governments might be unkeen on allowing this sort of market? Yeah, for example, there's these uh, what's what's called these death markets. So you can you kind of can bet on the death of uh, Donald Trump or something. And and then there's it's been said that uh, yeah, if that's really dangerous, kind of somebody could open the market, bet a lot of money on on, on that outcome, and then kind of hire a killer. Uh, uh, I think that's rather unlikely, and and it kind of it, it's it's made some headlines already with Augur because there are some bets to to that effect. Are there any ways that uh, Augur itself, for example, might take down some of the bets or not just Augur, but any one of these markets? So, of course, in a decentralized market, you have to find people who, or some, somebody who decides whether the outcome is this or that. And so Augur has these what they call reporters. So these are people, kind of uh, users of that platform, that service, that stake some money, some cryptocurrency which they lose if they don't, if they go rogue, if they say the wrong thing. But if they say, yes, okay, this is the outcome and this person should get the money and this person should pay, 
then they get a fee for that. So there's incentives for them, for these people, reporters, to look after the market and also to some extent filter out unethical markets or bets. And how successful has the market been so far? I mean, the numbers are, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's two weeks old now. It's like 800 markets are there if, if you go on the site. But if you look more closely, 80% of those markets is like, okay, I bet that Bitcoin's price will reach X in two weeks or five years or whatever. So it's, it's a lot of betting on cryptocurrencies, which you can do elsewhere. So that doesn't help much. And the problem with all these decentralized applications, it's much more complicated than just going to a website. So you have to download an app and then you have to download the blockchain, which is the database on which this, this application lives. And that took me like two hours until I could do anything useful or even looked at the at the market. And so I think a lot of people just give up. Have and you placed any bets? No, I haven't placed any bets. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to understand how it actually works because there's no explanation. If they want this to take off, really, it has to be much more intuitive. Otherwise, not a lot of people will volunteer their knowledge. It has to be really like I have an app and I click on that and, yeah, I know something about this. Let's place a bet. That would be kind of fun and, and would serve a useful purpose. But they're far from that at this point. Thanks, Ludwig. That's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. 